0: Welcome to the African Defense Review Podcast. I'm chatting to Michael Orison, who's the author of the IOM's report, If We Leave, We Are Killed, about the tensions arising in POC sites in South Sudan since the onset of conflict around in 2013. Welcome to the the recording. Thanks, Richard. So, I mean, maybe just as a place to start, for those who are unfamiliar with the idea of a protection of civilian site, maybe can you tell us a little bit about what are these and what makes them different to, for example, IDP camps or other... The ways of looking after civilians?
1: Yeah, well, in December 2013, um, violence broke out in Juba, in the capital of South Sudan, and one particular people group, the New Air, felt they were targeted. And as a result, a lot of New Air civilians tried running away someplace where they felt protected. Um, the UN at the time in Juba weren't able to protect people inside their houses. Uh, the head of the UN, Secretary General's representative said that essentially they didn't have the troops. And so what happened is you had tens of thousands of people actually running to the U.N. bases inside the capital for protection. Um, so they ran into the bases, and as a result, you have tens of thousands of people inside these U.N. bases, which aren't obviously set up to have IDP camps inside of them, space-wise or, you know, the numbers. And so what you got is essentially an IDP camp inside a U.N. military base, Um and this created what they call them protection civilian sites, is what you have. Now, this then spread to other parts of the country, uh, the state capitals and three other states where the fighting was between the government and the opposition, also created these huge POC sites um, where tens of thousands of people have fled to try to get protection. Um, they have over 200,000 people now, actually, two years into the just now that the peace deal has come, but there's over 200,000 people still in the UN bases.
0: And so this is this is a new concept, a UN bases are not normally adjoined or close to areas where civilians are being housed and protected?
1: Well, they're not normally inside the base itself, and so that's the main difference. Initially, there's even discussion of trying to move the people outside the base um, and have a camp, as you say, adjacent to where the UN could protect them essentially the civilians in these places didn't feel safe because it was the government who they felt was targeting them and they're in government controlled areas they did not want to have a camp just outside a UN base they did not feel the UN could protect them and so because the UN bases have their own obviously UN fences and UN you know guard towers and everything that they felt that these were the places they actually would feel safe and so one the IDPs did not weren't willing to move um and two, yeah, the UN bases might you know patrol around. the place in the Darfur. You have UN peacekeepers who patrol the IDP camps. But they don't actually put a fence around it and, and stop, say, for example, government actors from coming in. And this is what the IDPs were pretty much dependent on. They're scared of the government actors coming in and targeting them. And so this is why they stayed within the campsites themselves. They wouldn't move out of the-
0: And how did the, the UN perceive the situation And, and at the time that um these sort of thousands of people descended on the un basis how was the decision taken to let them in was it a unanimous central decision to say look this is we're going to establish something like this or was it a kind of in the moment thing from base to base
1: well there was a decision making at the top by the head of the un mission in juba um at the same time, essentially, because people were fleeing to the bases in the moment, the decision on some level was made for them. Um, in the report, we talk about this where one level of the decision... Was created to send. The, they sent the messaging out to the different states and said, "We need to open our bases to people who come for protection." Um, this was an order. However, by the time the order came out, people were already in many of the bases. People had fled directly to them. Some places in Juba, they're actually pushing down defens;e um, they're pushing through the gate. So, people had actually already in some of broken into the into the bases themselves and so some they couldn't actually stop the people unless they physically forced them to leave the bases and go back out to where they were being killed to some extent this decision was made for the mission leadership um however they did come out publicly on the second day and say yes we accept that people can come into our bases and while this happened particularly in jubo people were pushing their way in In the other state capitals the fighting started a few days later so at that point the troop commanding force officers in these places already knew that they should open the gates to let people in.
0: And once established, how how safe were these these bases for the civilians inside them?
1: To be honest, they weren't. Um, And this is one of the big challenges. Um, They're safer than they are outside. Uh, And that's always the thing. It's relative. At the same time, there's been dozens of incidents of IDPs in the camps being targeted. We had four months after the start, essentially in April in 2014, that one of the main bases in Bor was attacked by a group of youth who were protesting against the UN, essentially protecting, as they view it, rebels inside their camps. And they actually climbed over the fences, they walked in, they actually came into the IDP camp and killed over 40 people and they abducted people from within the camp itself. The UN responded but took them 40 minutes to get there in their own camp um, for the quick reaction force to actually get to protect the people and then push attackers out. And while that was one of the major cases that happened again recently in February in Malakal, dozens of people were killed as well again there. And those are the two notorious examples, but it happens quite often. Even just in front of the gates or just outside, there's actually many examples of people being abducted or raped within vicinity of the guard tower. So while they are safer than they are outside, um, to be honest, the the issues that spring up around DPKL missions and the the UN's ability to engage or use force essentially still arises even within the camps themselves.
0: And you'd identified in the report as well that the UN had a from, depending on your perspective, paradoxical view of the camps, that they were, in a sense, hindering the U- onerous ability to protect civilians. Can you maybe talk a little bit about um, that that perspective from the UN side?
1: Yeah, the perception from within the mission generally is that because they have 200,000 people within their main bases, that this takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot of their troops who are protecting the perimeter. It takes a lot of their money, obviously, to build up the bases and the fences and the perimeter as well. And therefore, it stops, takes away resources from them to actually Actually, project their main mandate now is protection of civilians um and as a result they can't project outside successfully because they're spending all the resources in terms of staffing and money on the camps themselves now this is the main argument they make however there's a counter argument to that, that essentially because they weren't able to successfully project outside and protect people outside of their bases before when the conflict began this is why the pocs existed in the first place if the un had actually been able to adequately protect people outside, then they wouldn't have had to flee to the bases themselves. Um, that said, I mean, realistically, is that it's, it's not possible. I mean, if you look at the number of staff or troops the UN has, the number of money, the quality of the troops, all the issues that tend to exist with dpko missions elsewhere, in reality, the UNMIS wouldn't have been able to protect people throughout the entire country. They haven't been given the resources they are needed. Um, but that said, there's a largely negative view towards the POC sites. There's a perception that it creates risk to the UN themselves. Um, you know, there's tens of thousands of people in their own camps. They could potentially take over if they wanted to. Yeah, so there's a fear essentially of the IDPs being there, and, the, and so there's largely negative view within the mission. They want them to close. They don't want them to exist, um, despite the fact that this is probably the one the most successful example of them carrying out their mandate. Um, they actually are still largely viewed as negative.
0: Were there any incidents in any of the POC sites? that might have supported the UN's view that they might be dangerous to the, the staff inside the bases.
1: Oh, well, for sure. Yes, I mean we've had incidents where NGO staff have been beat up. We've had incidents where UNPOL staff have been beat up. We've had people who have been robbed quite a bit. Um, so these, there's definitely a lot. There is definitely risk within the POC sites. Um, however, I mean to be honest the risk exists in South Sudan in general. I mean, if we're honest, UN staff are robbed outside the PLC sites as well. So I think it's that, personally, I think that there's usually a bubble. There's usually a separation, if we're honest, between many in the international community, including in DPKO missions, from the risks that people in the country themselves face, if we're honest. Um, we have big fences. We put big walls between ourselves. We have lots of guards. Um, and that risk essentially has been brought inside their own bases. And so I, it creates a somewhat fear and risk aversion, um, which is, well understandable, um, I don't think it's very helpful in terms of the relationships and the way they interact necessarily with the IDPs or with the people in their bases, those trying to respond. And
0: in the, the days when the bases were initially overrun with IDPs, what was the kind of arrangement of IDPs within the bases? So were they distributed throughout everywhere or were there a sort of defended section off in a cause of the UN bases and IDPs were accommodated around that?
1: Mostly the second. That said, it depended on the location. Um, some locations were much more organized than others. Uh, the Juba POC site in Bentu, for example more organized. When they brought people in, they cordoned off areas. They put up little fenced areas where they could put the IDPs and protect them, but then also protect the UN staff and assets. And so they put the IDPs in particular areas. Um, in one site called Malakal, for example, in the northeast of the country, it was chaos. Um, when people I've talked to who went and visited the first week after the conflict broke out, they didn't have the controls in place. So when people came in, they just pretty much settled where they wanted. So they were actually sleeping on people's porches, actually people's offices, um, wherever they could. And so it was very uncontrolled there. So it kind of varied depending on the leadership or the ability of the staff and the area the experience they had to organize this. But generally, they put them in, off in cordoned areas. Now, some places had large areas they could put them, um, empty areas where they actually had already separated for other things. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that none of these bases were obviously prepared to be IDP sites, and a lot of the land they were on was already pretty poor land. Um, the areas they had been given for some of these bases, even back with the first UN peacekeeping mission in Sudan, was pretty poor as swampy areas. And so, when you're putting something to ten thousand people, as soon as the rains came, a lot of them were sleeping under water, had water for you know two or three feet of water, and so the, the sites were really not well prepared. So it required a huge response by the mission and by the humanitarians to make them somewhat adequate.
0: Can you? Talk a little bit more about that. So what was, what kind of work was involved from the UN side and from the humanitarian side to turn the, the initial chaos into something resembling a more sort of structured and ordered camp?
1: Yeah. Initially, what well, we had in some places, a good example was the BENTU site um, up in Uni State. BENTU is the biggest one by far now, it has over 100,000 people in it, and it started off with a very small group. However more and more people kept coming in. And once they realized they had to expand, the problem is in the first three months uh, in South Sudan, you essentially have a dry season from December to May every year. And then the rest of the season is almost impossible to move large vehicles around the roads are pretty much closed off air is pretty much the only access. And within the first few months, there's a hope that the peace deal would immediately be signed. The peace agreement would come, people would go home. And so for the first few months, there wasn't a large investment in terms of moving you know, earth around and stuff. But when they realized that the rains were coming and this conflict wouldn't end immediately, they suddenly had to find some way of building these new bases, these new sites. The UN mission were the only people who had this type of equipment already on the ground in a lot of these remote areas. And so they ended up having to do most of the work. The NGOs largely actually relied on the UN vehicles and equipment to actually build this stuff and that also created a bit of tension, not surprisingly. The humanitarians were expecting the UN peacekeepers to give a lot of their equipment for them. Zanjos the didn't actually have the response. Um, they built the Bentu base. I mean, it's it's gigantic. There's over 100,000 people there now. I'm, I'm trying to think of the exact size. Um, it, it's one of the biggest bases, or one of the biggest IDP, it's the biggest IDP camp in the country, um, with I think over 100, 114 or something thousand people these days. And so there's... It's it's, it's enormous. They actually had to even bring in uh, experts from Holland to help them in terms of how to build a dike structure where they could actually pump water out because it was in such a flooded area. Um, So they put enormous amounts of work, months and months of work to try to build these gigantic sites where they could adequately house people on even just minimum standards, which still haven't been met, um, but they're much, much better than they were.
0: And what was that working relationship like between the humanitarians and the UN? So both in the early days when there was this kind of rush to to build the new sites and then as things kind of settled into... Uh, air quotes, normal uh, camp management. There were The report highlights that they were, I mean, the relationship was fractious at a, a number of different uh, points. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, everyone I've talked to said initially, the, in the very beginning, actually, the coordination was quite good. Um, when the conflict broke out, it was December. Um, in December, usually everyone takes off for large Christmas breaks. And so there was actually about 40% of staff on the ground when the conflict started, which... While largely negative in terms of the ability for humanitarians or people to respond, in some ways actually might have helped because there's less bureaucracy, to be honest. Um, There's major priorities, it was was pretty clear with suddenly 20,000 people in a camp and no place for them to sleep and no food. The priorities were quite shared, people in the mission and the people in the humanitarian organizations who were trying to respond had very clear priorities in the first few months. Once those got met, and once it realized, I think essentially that you know what, the rains are coming, the people are gonna stay, the conflict's not gonna end, and people aren't gonna leave in the next few months. A lot of bureaucracy essentially came up, and suddenly tension arose between the mission and between the humanitarians. A lot of it was, in terms of what they perceived as their mandate, the humanitarians obviously see as trying to improve services and try to create a better quality of life, or even a minimum standard quality of life inside these camps the perce- perception amongst many in the mission was that while they're obviously very happy with the quality of life improving they didn't want it that it created this draw factor to the camps itself there's a perception that if it, the quality of life was very high or actually got better than outside the camps that one, people in the camps wouldn't want to go home even if they actually felt safe and two, more people from outside would come meaning it would be even closer harder to close the camps down in the long term and so this kind of direct tension between the humanitarians and the mission sprung up in terms of the perception regarding the response within the camps. And this created a highly tense relationship. Um, Of course, the other big issue is that the military structure and humanitarian structure function very, very differently. Humanitarians are not very hierarchical. They're quite flat. Everyone has quite a bit of independence. Um, While the military structure within the UNMIS mission themselves is obviously quite hierarchical you have to depend on your force commander or you have to go up the chain of command to actually get approvals and so these things also directly butted up against each other so in the first few months it actually was quite good but you about four or five months in it came quite tense actually
0: the report talks about a number of uh examples of some of these tensions coming about are there some that stand out in your mind as as particular good illustrations of of how these kind of tensions were paying out
1: yeah an excellent example i think actually is i mean There was a toilets that they were trying to latrines. They're trying to big dig in the UN house in Juba in the UN site there in the Tomping base near the airport. Um, And they actually the head of the wash cluster, which is you know those in charge of sanitation, and for the NGOs had agreed with the head of the actually the head of the UN mission. I guess Sector, the RRP, who was in charge of actually coordinating with the NGOs. And they'd agreed a location to build these latrines. Now, there's a fear of cholera at the time because of the flooding. Um, and as a result, actually, interestingly, the local local commander from the Rwandan battalion refused to allow them to get latrines there. Now, they feared that they might be at risk of cholera themselves. They called up Kigali, and then Kigali said, no, they can't dig them there. Now, this obviously created huge amounts of frustration within... The, the mission themselves, and the and those who were actually responsible for selecting the sites, and obviously the humanitarians who were actually coordinating this, they obviously had thought of the fact that this with the risks that building latrines there, and they realized that building latrines would obviously reduce the chance of cholera much further than actually increasing the risk towards the Rwandan troops. But issues within kill missions were often, you know, troops report to their headquarters, um, to their capital, rather than to the force commander on the ground, um, created these issues where all of a sudden even digging latrines is just suddenly not allowed unless you get approvals from different capitals and I think it's a good example this kind of thing happened over and over again often actually where there's just different priorities and as a
0: result quite a bit of tension the report talks a little bit about how I believe it was the name is far too long here. Uh, Deputy Special Representative of the Secretary General, the sort of triple hatted was the word used in the at the panel that was discussing this report at Channel in House. Uh, the position of someone like Toby Lanza was helpful in trying to mediate some of these concerns. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what the triple hatted role is about and how that kind of helped the situation. Yeah, the
1: triple hatted role was created. For, to create an integrated mission, so historically there's an issue between the humanitarian side and the mission um, the peacekeeping side, where there wasn't a coordination. So they create an integrated mission with the idea that if you had someone who is the deputy SRSG, essentially the number two for the peacekeeping mission, they also had a dual role as a humanitarian coordinator. Now this is this is newish. Um, if you go back years ago, they definitely would have separate roles. Humanitarian Corps were completely independent from the peacekeeping mission. But the idea was if they could coordinate better if you had someone who had a dual role. In this case, actually a triple role because they're actually the resident coordinator as well. Um, it would help improve coordination. Now, it, it did on many levels, to be honest. And this is is important. I do think because of the role of Toby Lamzer, actually, when the conflict broke out, he was actually able to represent the humanitarians and the mission at meetings. He was able – if the humanitarians had a big issue, as we pointed out with good examples of latrines – He, as the number two for the mission, could step in and say, look, this is, I'm directing it. And so that was actually very helpful moving things forward and vice versa. When the mission felt frustrated with the humanitarians pushing things forward without their permissions or knowing what was going on, he was able to feed back into humanitarians as well and represent them. That said, it's also created issues with integrated mission, as in a lot of humanitarians feel that they've also, on some extent, lost their independence. The fact that the mission can tell them, um what to do, or can threaten to tell them we won't allow that. Humanitarians have a big issue with, because they say, look, now we have peacekeepers um, telling us what we as humanitarians can do. Part of the humanitarians, you know, feel that they need to have independence, they need to have their own ability to make decisions, um, so they're not perceived as working for the UN mission or for a political purpose. And so they felt also threatened by that. A good example is a colleague of mine who, a former, who traveled around with me and presented on behalf of the NGOs um when we did this launches. Good example is where they came up with their own shelter plan and they took it to the IDPs and the Bantu POC site to get the as a test to see if the IDPs agreed with it or if they liked it and get feedback on the prototype. And the UN mission called in their staff and said, you have to take that down. And they said, well, how come? And they said, well, it's going to create more people who are going to want to come to the POC site. Therefore, we refuse for you to leave that up to get feedback from the IDPs. And if you don't take it down, we will send UN police to remove it from the property. And so this is where they often feel tension, where they think, look, we should be able to respond as NGOs without a UN peacekeeping mission telling us what kind of shelters we can put in place or where we can dig our latrines. That is not. peacekeeping decision that is completely humanitarian and so the role you know there's pluses and negatives to be honest I think like say Toby Langer's role in the beginning was imperative actually in helping things actually flow in the very beginning but it does create tension as well where humanitarians feel that in some extent Having integrated missions means that the human you know, the mission can tell humanitarians what to do and they lose some level of
2: independence.
0: Were there any humanitarian organizations that just refused to step into the the kind of management context of the PSC sites, or did most or all of them in the end kind of come around to some sort of working relationship with the UN?
1: Um, they all, I think they almost all came around. I mean, even you get medicines on frontier, Doctors Without Borders works inside the camps, um, which is very unusual. Um, so most of them have come in on some level. Uh, a few humanitarian groups decided, rather than prioritizing the POC sites, they're going to prioritize them working outside. The POC sites does get the most attention. Um, they have about I think twelve or fourteen percent of the population of displaced people in the country, but they have about thirty percent of the funding. So in some ways, they're an easier place to respond. There's more money for you know IDP, if you will. They're more concentrated. So. Humanitarians have prioritized often the POCs, but the fact is, the majority of people—you know, over eighty percent—are still outside these sites. Those who actually need support. So, there have there been a few partners, a few humanitarian organizations, decide? You know what? We're not going to work in there. We're going to work outside. Um, but for the most part, those they have actually decided to work within the sites. And
0: then as the camps dragged dragged on from from month to month, at what point did it become clear to the UN and to to the humanitarians that these might not be short-term accommodations?
1: Well, I would say honestly from quite the beginning the humanitarians thought they would be short term um, I think the mission I mean I can't I'm not, I wasn't part of the mission, but it did seem from talking to those who were, was in a bit of denial that they were a long-term thing. I think because the perceived threat, because of the issues, from the beginning, they were planning short-term. The UN, one thing you'll see in the report as well, is that the UN mission, even when they got a new mandate in early 2014, they didn't request any new funding. Now, part of that is that the funding will take a long time to get there. It could take, you know, over a year before the time the the new budget's actually implemented, and they perceive that they won't be there that long, the POC sites. However, this means that they've never actually budgeted for them. They haven't actually had a long-term plan for the POC sites, and they're always responding in short term. And this is part of, I think, the inherent tension in the POC sites, is that the mission themselves was always kind of hoping that with the new ceasefire, the new peace agreement, there was four or five, I believe, in the two-year period before the actual peace agreement was implemented, that the IDPs would return almost as soon as these peace deals came into place. And this wasn't the case. Even now, the peace deal has been implemented. You have React Mashar. now back in Juba, the head of the opposition. The fact is the camps themselves are probably going to be around for a couple of years, especially if one or two of them, probably three of them, are going to be around for quite a while. And to some extent, this is an inherent tension. I mean, the fact is majority of the people on the PLC sites are going to remain there for quite a while. Um, but they
0: still have a short-term planning around the POC sites, which I think is part of the issue. Was it not strange that when the UN had their mandate changed that there was no adjustment in the budget? I mean, it, it You would ex- have expected that if the UN was taking, I don't want to be too blunt, but if it was taking the new mandate seriously, there would have been some sort of modification in the budget request in, in that new direction. Or was it it a sense that, you know, the new mandate will roll back to the old mandate at some point, and then we will have kind of preempted the correct budget requests?
1: Well, yeah, this is exactly it, to be honest. I mean, I was talking to people in the mission themselves at the time when the new mandate came in. They said even then the mandate was always discussed as the temporary mandate. Um, They never said we have this mandate. They said the temporary mandate. So there's an assumption that it would go back. So despite the fact that the mandate changed. Now, normally mandates change for peacekeeping missions. As I'm sure you know, they apply for new funding. Um, But the assumption was, because it's a temporary mandate, they never planned for it. They never planned for having this full-time POC mandate. The assumption was it would go back to what it was before, and therefore they didn't put in the budget requests, they didn't plan long-term regarding a new mandate. And even now, I mean, this is the question now that the peace deal is here, you know, will the mandate change back? I mean, but yeah, it has been two years um,
2: at this point. But the assumption was from the beginning was that that was a temporary mandate. And do
0: you, did you get a sense when you were doing the, the presentation in Juba that the UN has changed that thinking at all, or is it now three years down the line, and at least rhetorically, this is still a temporary mandate?
1: Well, to be honest, I, I think it's still... I think they realize now it's been two years, they can't quite call it temporary. But I think the assumption is, again, is always in a month or two from now, the peace deal is coming. Um, now we have opposition leader, Riak Mishara, back in Juba, therefore their mandate will go back to supporting government and state building as well as protection of civilians. So I I do think, like you say, it's been two years. I don't think they can call it temporary, but I do believe they think that it's going to switch back. And therefore they have the budget plans from before, which including the state building mandate, and that's going to be part of their mandate again. And so, yeah, I I just think they haven't actually planned around it because they keep hoping for the best Um, to be honest.
0: (laughs) And just jumping back to questions around camp management, the report highlighted uh, a number of issues around establishing security and kind of leadership structures within the camp, um, getting local community leadership structures in in place. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges there so that Unpol faced and the the mission faced generally with um, trying to set up local representatives?
1: Yeah, in terms of the policing of the camps, I mean, it proved a very big difficulty in terms of the fact is Unpol themselves don't have an executive mandate, as they constantly point out. And so they can't actually arrest people. They can't put them in court. They don't have judges, of course, in the UN to hold them over within their base themselves. Now, if they hand them over to the government, then there's a whole issue of reforming where they might actually, if you turn someone over from the camp who the government might then abuse or treat because of their ethnicity or because of the political perceptions, they might be targeted for that. And so for the most part, the UN police can't hand over those they arrest to the government. Now they've done that a couple times in certain cases with murders or something, they might turn them over to the government police, but because people are seeking protection from the government itself in the bases for the most part, obviously that's not really an option. Just create this kind of limbo in the middle where the UN police are trying to reduce crime. They're trying to keep minimal levels of violence within the camps, but they only have so many powers that they can actually carry out. Um, as a result, they have, you know, containment centers, but how long they can put them in there, you know, they just keep them in there for years in some cases until, you know, peace comes. Um, and so there's a lot of issues. I mean, the other issue that sprung up a lot that IDP has always talked about and many ways complained about was the U.N. police not recognizing traditional court mechanisms. Now, this is understandable The U.N. police aren't going to accept whatever customary courts are used outside necessarily because a lot of them disagree with international human rights law. Um, you know, largely they didn't accept those, which if you will, regarding ownership of women, if you will, in terms of if you get a girl pregnant, you have to pay money um, or go to jail. So the UN would not put someone in jail for getting somebody pregnant. But this created a lot of fighting within the camps, actually. A lot of the tension, a lot of the internal fighting in the camps sprung up because of these cases, um, pregnancy cases or adultery cases, which are normally paid off outside, which are not recognized as illegal elsewhere in the world. And therefore, there's a lot of fighting between families, between clans within the camps themselves. Now, the UN try to rely as, as you mentioned in terms of the camp leadership structures. Um, the camp leadership structures varied from place to from camp to camp. Um, but generally what they did is a very democratic, more or less, where they would select people from the region to represent that region. And then they would the, the three or four regions or the seven regions depending on the area or the seven greater county areas that would share whatever role as either the camp chairperson or the secretary or the deputy or the head of women's issues and rotate those. Every six months they have another vote. So it's actually quite a democratic process um, to try to, one, help the UN engage with the people themselves and give them some ownership and some leadership. And try to also mitigate fighting a lot of these camp leaders job is actually trying to reduce the fighting so when essentially there was a pregnancy case the UN would refuse to arrest the youth who got the girl pregnant and therefore the camp leadership would have to sit down with both the family and try to get them from revenging and start a conflict
0: and some of these leadership structures Caused a couple of headaches when it came time to relocate some of some of the sites. So, for example, I think there was in the report uh, you talked about the move of the the base when it came time from the Tongping site to UN House. There were difficulties with trying to get leadership to get everyone on board with with relocation i mean to what can you talk a a little bit about that and b to what extent was that universal and were there areas where these kind of leadership groups work very well with um helping move people from site to site when it was time to move or resolving these sorts of issues
1: yeah the challenge is a lot of the people who are the leaders in the camps some of them are leaders outside who then switch their roles and were leader in the camps themselves some their position of power depends on the camps existing and this is what essentially came up when they tried closing the camp in Tomping and moving it to the UN House is that the leaders in charge of the camp were essentially afraid that if it moved they would lose their position of power and influence and so there's a big push back against that. Now there's a few other factors as well. There's a fear that if they got moved they might be targeted. There's lack of trust that you know, if the UN put them in lorries and sent them somewhere that they'd be going somewhere safe or not. But it created a huge tension between a lot of IDPs and, particularly, the mission and some of the NGOs who are trying to support the move. Um, it was in terms of how you go about it. There's a lot of threatening by the IDPs. Um, there's, you know, detaining, if you will. Staff were trying to hand out awareness raising about it, I and mean, then they release them and claim it was for their own protection. That they detain them because people would be angry, but really, as the leaders. Um, you even have a perfect example in one camp, which still exists, in a small camp in UN House in Juba, called POC Site One. You had one leader who they claimed did essentially a coup. He took over. They got rid of the old leader. He was voted in, um, claiming that they would refuse the WFP. Program of handing out food vouchers. Um, they wanted food distributions, not food vouchers, which is where you go to a store with your voucher and get the change for food. And this is his, he ran on this record that he would stop this from happening. Now, once he got into power, he actually agreed eventually because that was the only way to get food to come. But interesting enough, it, he'd been accused quite a bit, the leader there, of abusing his power, where essentially the local community police units, which they work with youth, the UN poll works with the youth there to try to police themselves. Have essentially to some extent <laughs> um have their own little racket going where they need protection money if you will where essentially they go to all the businesses and say you have to pay a specific amount per month if you want to make sure we protect your um your store you know um and interestingly enough same thing to UN and there's, there's there's nothing they can do in terms of taxation within the camps you know there's no law regarding how, who, who can tax people if can the local community leadership tax their own people um And, you know, even though people saw it as largely abusive to some extent as um, extractive or essentially they were demanding payment, otherwise they would, you know, threaten them to some extent, Um, there's very little on something the UN could actually do unless they caught somebody beating them up. And so there's issues where essentially the camps, you know, the leadership is there needed to help control and engage with the people and help mitigate violence in the camps themselves. But at the same time, then you run into the issue of the camp abusive essentially by the camp leadership and the minimal that the UN can do. They can't really fire the people themselves. They're not in control of them. Um, so they create these systems which then, in some occasions, they lost control of. Now, in other occasions, they work very, very well um, and they try to reduce violence. Um, but it depends on the site. Each site varies a huge amount. The Molokov site in the Northeast had three different ethnic groups so that one's by far the most complicated that people from each ethnic group represented equally and they try to mitigate violence between the ethnic groups which has worked to some extent and has other times not worked um it has worked the best in sites where they're all one ethnic group not surprisingly um they have their own similar systems in place and then they vote by clan now then they have tensions between clans but it has been able to work to some extent in some places but the issues of abuse always come up
0: and the the sites when they were were finally wound up, or some of them. Um, so, what is the current status? So, the tong tongping base has moved to UN House. Are most of the others still on the sites that they were moved to? after the the initial influx to the bases, or have many of the others been moved over to something resembling separate IDP sites now?
1: Well, essentially, when they expanded the bases, what they did is when IDPs first fled in, they were largely put in, say, parking lots or logistical spaces, you know, just empty places in the immediate base. One, they did an expansion... They put the expansion right next to the base, so essentially adjacent. So if you go to the Bentu site, you go to the Molecule site, or even the new UN house, the one where they moved people from Tomping, that was put right next to the UN base. So it's not actually within the UN base. There's actually a fence between the IDP POC site and the UN mission base itself. So there is actually fenced off area. The difference is they actually still have um, guard towers. They, they still have patrols outside that area they have essentially now put them in adjacent areas. So they are just next to it. So the assumption is that at some point the UN will slowly just take their security back where they won't have full-time guardian of defenses, right? They'll create, so there's this community next to the UN base as opposed to you know, inside of it. So essentially they've put them adjacently to it.
0: Is that likely to become the new normal? So have what would amount to a large IDP camp adjacent to but not directly infringing on the security of the UN base next
1: door. I mean I honestly I think that's what's going to happen in South Sudan if it becomes normal elsewhere. Um, they didn't want that. I know, And for example, at beginning of this year in a place called Yambio in Western Equatoria, or former yet Western Equatoria state in South Sudan, about 5,000 IDPs fled to uh, the U.N. base there for protection. And the U.N. base actually refused to let them in. Um, the local commanders sent them to the local N- an NGO compound nearby. And they said, we'll protect the NGO compound. They'll give perimeter security for that. Um, so now that obviously raises a number of issues. But it does look like whether it's a force commander's decision um, – or it's coming from higher up. It, it does seem like they don't want these situations. They would rather, as you said in the very beginning, have IDP camps somewhere else where they could protect them, but not adjacent to them. Because, again, if they're adjacent even with a immediate fence, then they feel a threat to themselves. I mean, they're quite the UN peacekeeping mission has prioritized having buffer zones between them and IDPs themselves. They want to have a buffer area. They, when the UN, uh, sorry, the humanitarian agencies have tried to recently expanded sites and used some of the land bordering up on the U.N. base on the fence. In some places like Bentu, the U.N. has been quite pushy and refused. They say we have to have 100 meters of buffer zone between the IDPs and ourselves. Um, so they're trying to, like you say, push them further out. The big issue is, of course, the fact is the IDPs themselves already feel that, to some extent, the U.N. can't protect them even when they're literally adjacent to. The further they go out, if they're built a kilometer or two kilometers away, could the UN troops actually protect them there? Um, and would they have guard towers or would they actually just do perimeter patrols? And, you know, are they actually able to protect the IDPs in the camps and would IDPs accept that there is a good chance that if those places got attacked, IDPs would run to the UN base themselves. Um, and so the question is, yeah, how far can they push them away um, before the IDPs,
0: then turn around and come back to the UN bases, demanding to be let in. Having allowed, open the gates once to allow IDPs in, 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 under sort of extreme moments. It, to what extent is there feeling that might have now created a precedent? So either for the UN or for South Sudanese civilians fleeing violence. So if there were another breakdown between uh, Machar and Kiir's uh, factions back in the capital. Almost certainly it seems that the civilians would once again maybe try to access UN bases in the same way as before. Is, is, that, is, is that true to say that that kind of precedent exists for South Sudanese now? And is it shared by the UN that if, if there was a second time they would allow the gates to be opened?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. There's definitely precedent. Um, there is an assumption from IDPs, and this is partly why in the report when we were talking and discussing it, is why within the humanitarians largely they say, look, the camps aren't going to close anytime soon because exactly that. Um, one, people still don't feel safe outside. And if there is any shooting, say, between Mashar and Kier's troops,
2: you're
1: going to have tens of thousands of people, even those who aren't in the camps, flee to the UN bases. Um, this is where they perceive themselves to be safest. And so the idea that the camps are going to
2: close anytime soon um, entirely is just unrealistic. The people aren't feeling safe, and the
1: chances there's going to be more people coming if there are any security incidents. Um, the one thing to keep in mind is that while the POC sites themselves, in terms of the name, Started when the fighting broke out. There have been cases before the crisis in December 2013 where IDPs did flee to UN bases in places such as PBOR and elsewhere. Um, The major difference was those are always small numbers for small, short amounts of times. And so people would always go for 24 hours, 48 hours until the fighting, the immediate fighting stopped and then it returned. However, this time they've obviously stayed long term. Um, it has become a tension. I, I do note, for example, humanitarians were quite frustrated as of last year when I was interviewing some people on the Juba bases because the UN mission there had taken away all the contingency planning and said, or the supplies and said, look, we don't want contingency supplies in the base anymore. So we need to remove those and take them back. Um, the humanitarians, of course, said, well, look, if fighting does break out, you have more people coming to the bases. Now you have no supplies in your base again. You've essentially gone back to where you were before the crisis where you haven't you – you're not prepared to respond if people do come to the base. But the push from the UN leadership, mission leadership, is that, look, we, we're we not expecting more people to come. Um, we're not registering new people. But this will be a big issue. Yeah, if there's any fighting in Juba and 20,000 people show up at the gates, I think they'll have to let them in. The question is are they going to register them or are they going to just insist that they return? Um, and I don't think these questions have been adequately answered. They have also been cases in other countries where people have fled to UN bases. Um, at this point, none of them have been long term, similar to pre December 2013 in South Sudan, where people go for a day or two just outside the base and then leave again. They return to where they're from. But if there's, you know, continual violence or continual threat or insecurity in some of these countries, if a war breaks out and or the war continues and spreads, and people don't feel safe returning after 48 hours, and this will become an issue elsewhere as well.
0: And then finally, what I wanted to ask is how is the report being received? So, you mentioned you've done uh, presentations of it in Juba, Sydney, in London, uh, presumably elsewhere as well. I mean, what, is, what has been the response to, to the findings and to the account that you give of, of this relationship over the PSC sites?
1: Largely very positive. We give launches in juba and london and geneva and new york and in dc um to try to create a wider discussion about this um none of the issues are very few i mean the PLC sites are new but many of the issues have been existing long term Um, they've just been exacerbated by these sites so generally the response has been quite positive the mission themselves wasn't terribly supportive in juba i mean they didn't they disagree with the idea the camps would be around a long time um to be honest, they slightly dismissed it uh, publicly, at least on the radio. They dismissed it as one person's findings, um, just me, myself, Mike <laughs> Um and therefore not worth necessarily engaging with. However, elsewhere, there's been quite a bit of support. Um, the goal of the report wasn't to attack when or to attack the NGOs, and if that is the final result, then it was a failure. I mean the objective report was to create an objective look um, at what happened in the last two years and say, as you said – this is likely to happen elsewhere. Um, UN missions generally aren't able to proceed to actually adequately protect people outside of their own bases. And therefore, you're going to have more and more people fleeing to the UN bases themselves, particularly as they hear this happening in South Sudan. And there needs to be some lessons learned. There needs to be some standard operating procedures of how do we work in this situation if it continually happens elsewhere. How do NGOs respond? How do the UN mission peacekeepers respond? And the idea is saying, look, we have an example of two years here. We need to learn from this so we don't repeat the same mistakes. So it's not meant to be a bashing of anybody. Um, I talk to people from both sides, UN mission, and ideally I try to make it as objective as possible. Um, I, I'm sure people aren't always happy with some of my findings, but generally, uh, I mean, people from the from DPKL and from the humanitarians have been very supportive. So the question is, will it lead to any major changes? And I think that's the big always a big question um some major discussions have to take place particularly at the political level with humanitarians and with dpko in terms of their issues they, they face regarding the missions everything that everyone knows but is the political will there for actually pushing member states to actually make the changes they need to to really give the opera you know, give these peacekeeping missions a chance to actually succeed um rather than just send them someplace so we can say they're there and we've done our job um so hopefully that will happen, we will see, but um, hopefully this will at least will create some some record of what happened the first time these sites have been around long term, and if it happens elsewhere, then hopefully
0: they'll, they'll learn something from what happened in South Sudan. Great, and with that I won't keep you going for the better part of an hour, um, but thank you very much for your time today, and do, do you have any more presentations still scheduled?
1: No, not at this point. Um, we don't have any more scheduled. Yeah, sadly not. But we do, like there's reports online, reports available on the IOM. So people can find it. It's called, if we leave, we are killed. Um, so hopefully people will read it. And I mean, we'd love feedback. I'm sure there's things people have issues with or disagree with or it, it's, it's, it's not terribly in depth. I mean, it's, it looks quite hefty. People get intimidated because it's over 50 pages, but um, <laughs> the POTs are, you know, two years. It's a very complicated issue. So we try to keep it, short and uh, you know as short as possible with major looking at major issues so hopefully yeah uh, we'd love to hear more feedback though if people have any um to have the further discussion we just want to make sure this discussion doesn't just dis- disappear and get buried and a few years from now we
2: talk about the same issues and forget that we've actually done this before fantastic thank you so much for your time today thank you again for having me